Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Political State Podcast from the Oklahoman. I'm Ben Felder here in the Oklahoman's podcast studio in our downtown newsroom. Joining me is the Oklahoman's state capital reporter, Carmen Foreman. Carmen, hello. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, a big week for you, the end of a session. We've got a budget signed, um, kind of the, uh, it feels like the end of school. It actually is the end of school. A lot of schools are getting out today and, and so is the legislature. Yeah, hooray to both. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll we're going to dive into that a little bit later in today's episode. Um, but in this first segment, uh, we're going to kind of discuss some of the political dynamics of abortion as a handful of states have pushed laws recently that effectively ban abortion in an effort to get this newly conservative U.S. Supreme Court to possibly take up the issue. And maybe surprisingly, Oklahoma you know, didn't join in on the group this year, and we'll maybe discuss that a little bit later. But let me introduce our guest uh, for this week's episode, which is Michelle Oberman, who's a professor at Santa Clara University School of Law and the author of a book, Her Body, Our Laws, published last year that explores uh, kind of the political abortion wars, but it includes a a chapter with some great detail on Oklahoma. And Michelle, so happy to have you. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. I want to obviously talk a lot about the Oklahoma dynamics of this book, uh, a book that I've read and and Carmen has. We've got a copy here in front of us. And just uh, some really interesting insight into the political abortion wars as a whole. And, and like I said, we want to drill into what you wrote about Oklahoma. But kind of, can you first off just get us a little bit of synopsis of your book and, and kind of why you decided to tackle this project? Sure. Yeah. So around 10 years ago, I was, uh, I was, I happened to be uh, in Latin America in first in Chile, um, which is a country that had a complete ban on abortion. And I was struck by a couple of things that were different from what I'd expected. The first thing was that uh, in spite of the ban, abortion seemed to be really commonplace. It was happening all over. And um, the second thing was that the laws weren't really being enforced. And so I I was curious about that. And I found myself coming back to the States and then deciding that I wanted to go to El Salvador, which has a similar ban to Chile. It's one of the strictest bans in, in the world. And just try to understand what happens today rather than the set point of prior to Roe versus Wade, but you know, what happens today when you ban abortion? So I spent a 10 year period going back and forth to El Salvador studying the answer to that. And I came away feeling like Americans, when they fight over abortion, which is in some ways kind of all we've been doing for the past yeah. 50 years, have, have no real clue to what the answer is. And it's really different from what both sides think. I mean, I think both sides have got it wrong. Women aren't using coat hangers. They're not dying from illegal abortions. They're using drugs they order online. And the laws are almost impossible to enforce. So for folks who really oppose abortion at a moral level, they're going to have to do a lot more than change the law if they want abortion to go yeah. away. So so then, like, once I, I started feeling like that, then I really wanted to go spend time in a state that was very pro-life, a state that had dedicated itself to restricting abortion and to doing as much as they could to overturn Roe v. Wade or push back on legalized abortion. And so I was drawn to Oklahoma and got to spend a lot of time there in 2013-2014 with, uh, with the help of folks at Oklahoma City Law School interviewing activists and lawmakers and docs and you know people that had been really working hard to change laws around abortion 
trying to understand what they thought would change if they were successful. Yeah. Well, a real fascinating to read it if for no other reason than just the kind of insight and some of the major players on the, you know, the culture war that is abortion here in Oklahoma. Um, I, I want to mm-hmm. ask you about this. This is a, a part of you've got a chapter and there's a subchapter titled Lessons from from Longer, which it refers to Tony Longer, who's a major figure in the quote unquote pro-life movement here. Um but here's a here's a segment from your book, and, and you write, one of the questions I asked everyone was what they thought would happen if, in Oklahoma if Roe v. Wade fell. Ryan Kiesel, who had served 10 years in office fighting for reproductive rights, had a cynical response. And here's what he said in your book. The right doesn't want to win. They, want, they don't want Roe v. Wade to fall. Opposing Roe is their template for running for office. It's their political touchstone. It avoids the need to talk about anything else. If that's taken away from them, they're going to have to deal with splits in the coalition, end quote. Now, I think there are some, you know, very dedicated, you know, those who have called themselves pro-life individuals who would probably push back on that and say the cynical response is that, no, they want a mm-hmm. complete ban. But for, in the political arena, how true do you think that really is in a state that's, you know, very conservative politically, Republican majorities who all who most all say that they are pro-life or would describe themselves as pro-life? How true do you think it is that some of them actually wouldn't want to see a complete ban? So I think it would get complicated. I don't know that it's actually true they wouldn't want to see a ban, but they might not like what they get. And you get to see just a glimpse of that in looking at the response to Alabama's yeah. um, ban that was passed last uh, last week, I yeah. guess it was, um, where you, you had you know leaders pro-life leaders like pat robertson and states that are dominant red states um you know and prosecutors in those states like georgia or or utah saying whoa we don't want to prosecute women and alabama's law to be fair actually exempts women from prosecution um but it's 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 questions around prosecution that i think are going to partly surface those fracture lines among pro-life people because frankly illegal abortion in 2019 doesn't involve doctors Hmm. it's abortion drugs so if you're going to pass these bans and enforce the laws you're going to have to find someone besides the doctor to go after because women are ordering drugs online self-managed abortion is the dominant way that women are ending abortion uh, ending unwanted pregnancies in countries with restrictive laws throughout the world so if you're not going to come after women then how are you planning to enforce these laws yeah you know, we have a, a new governor here in Oklahoma who has said that uh, you know he'll sign any anti-abortion legislation that comes across his desk, and um, there was an effort this year for uh, for a bill that would you know reclassify abortion as as murder. It didn't make it out of the Senate. We can talk, talk about that here in a, in a moment, um, but it was interesting because it, it did. You know, you know, essentially the woman would be, you know, accused of committing murder if she committed or she performed an abortion or had an abortion performed. And those around the governor's office were like, man, we really, you know, privately were saying we really don't want this to come up because this, you know, at a, at a time where we're trying to reduce incarceration rates, especially, you know, leading the nation and, mm-hmm. and female incarceration like we do in Oklahoma, this is just, it just kind of clashes with that mentality. Now we have this bill. Um, so it just kind of, you know, I guess it does, like you said, kind of opens up a new can of worms if you're going to put forward a complete bo- a ban. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit more complicated than it might sound. Right. Right. And let me be clear about this. 60% of women who have abortions already have children. So a plan to lock women up for abortions, even if you assume that juries are going to be willing to convict women, when you look at these cases, historically, juries have not been willing to convict women. I mean, abortion is commonplace. Women have abortions when they can't afford to have children. 
and there's blood on more than one set of hands by definition in any kind of abortion prosecution but even if juries were willing to convict you'd be orphaning children yeah i mean it you know it's just economically and morally it doesn't make it doesn't make sense yeah so are we seeing right now with these states that are like you said alabama i mean is this just purely a you know with a with a newly conservative supreme court or a more conservative supreme court is this just an effort to get you know the the roe v wade debate back in front of the court you know, I don't know the answer to it, and and I think folks like you um, who think about politics might be able to, to to give a more sophisticated response. My sense is that for a lot of us on all sides of the abortion war, the law has a really important symbolic value, and we haven't been asked to think beyond symbolism for the past forty five years that we've been fighting over it. And so, the symbolic value of a ban, I think, means a lot to folks who hate abortion. <laughs> Um, so I wouldn't say it's just a cynical attempt to get it in front of Roe, although it may be get it in front of the Supreme Court, although it may be that as well. It's also because we've only been thinking about abortion in symbolic terms. We haven't actually asked practical questions like how would a rape exception work? Would she have to go to police? Would it have to be a rape by a stranger? What are we going to do with the rape by a right? You know, like these practical questions just haven't been relevant. And we haven't asked our lawmakers those practical questions, so we're going to have to start doing that. Um, I'm curious, you know, I don't know how much you've kept up with, you know, Oklahoma politics since your book has been published, but, you know, I'm kind of curious, in the book you said uh, you came to Oklahoma because it is one of the most, um, quote-unquote, pro-life or anti-abortion states in the country. Do you still feel that way, or is um, have states like Alabama uh, taken that position now? I I think there's a lot of states vying for that title right now. And and to be clear, they were vying for it in 2013 when I when I came as well. Um, The uh, you know, at any given time, the number of states whose elected officials um, are there by virtue of having courted the vote of pro-life populations or constituencies is is, it seems to be pretty high and and growing and uh, so, yeah, I don't I mean, I know Oklahoma was really proud of the way that it had enacted the model legislation drafted by the National Right to Life movement and had effectively and, and quickly moved it through, particularly in the in the years after um, term limits uh, took took hold. Um, but my sense is that that even then there was competition for that title. How much did you feel like religion played a part in what you saw here in Oklahoma? Because, I mean, it's kind of hard to separate in, in a very conservative yeah. state, a very evangelical state um, statewide. And maybe it changes a little bit when you're in the urban setting um, like we are. But um, a lot of politics and, and evangelical faith, you know, blend here. How much did you see that when you were you were on the ground looking at this issue? Um, I, I think religion played a role at a couple of levels. Um, first, just politically, I think that the um, the religious communities, and in particular the Southern Baptist Convention, had organized themselves so that they were mobilized and able to bring out voters on issues, and, and abortion was an issue they wanted to bring their voters out on. So, you know, literally, with, uh, with a, a, a phone call, Dr. Anthony Jordan, who I interviewed, who's the head of the Southern Baptist Convention, could mobilize voters across the state to come out to vote for or against a candidate. Um, But I think religion also plays a role for the folks who are working in the trenches. And my most meaningful and and moving interview, I think, was with the women who volunteered at a a place called Willow Pregnancy Support on the south side of Oklahoma City, who were 
for the most part, Catholic women who had been working to give women alternatives to abortion since 1973. I mean, they started with folding chairs and rented space and a single phone line and just a teeny bit of support from an international group called Birthright. And over time, they fundraised, built a shelter, a shelter that can only house five women at a time. But when poor women come to them and say, you know, I, I really wish I could keep this pregnancy, but I'm homeless, I'm addicted to drugs, I've got two kids in the foster care system, I don't have a job, I didn't finish high school, I've got all kinds of post-traumatic stress disorder from my boyfriend who beat me, and by the way, I'm five months pregnant or four months pregnant. They were finding ways to house those women. They're motivated by their religious belief. And, and you know, it was just a, a very moving thing to see where their faith took them and how expensive it is when you're serious about creating alternatives to abortion. Yeah. You know, I think what's interesting this year is we talk about some of these states like Alabama, Missouri, that seem to be kind of trying to push the envelope on what is, is legally available in terms of fighting back against abortion. And, you know, these laws that seem to be unconstitutional, I think some of the lawmakers would say, well, yeah, that's fine. We're willing to have that battle at the Supreme Court if it comes to that. Um, we didn't see that here in Oklahoma. Um, Oklahoma would seem to be an, you know, one of those states that would want to get in on this, you know, party, so to speak. Um, what we did see is we saw, um, you know, a minority group in the Republican Party in the Senate this year that were pushing for this bill that would, would reclassify abortion as a homicide. Um, the Senate leader uh, declined to take it up. The, the, the committee leader also, following his direction, declined to take it up, saying that this would be unconstitutional. And they didn't want to they didn't want to pass legislation that was going to end up, you know, getting bogged down the courts. Now, someone who's covered politics in Oklahoma for several years, that's an interesting response because the legislature in the past has had no uh, no pause at all about taking up, uh, you know, mm -hmm. laws or bills that they that, that they know are going to be challenged. Um now, to be fair, there's a, there was a new pro tem for the Senate, so you can't necessarily peg that all on him. He said, that, "Listen, I'm I'm very pro life, but you know I don't want this to be challenged." Um, mm -hmm. Is that a? I mean, how would you? Is that? I mean, I, like I said, I know you're not necessarily an expert in Oklahoma politics, but given your experience in researching the issue here, um, how much of a debate is that within you know mostly the Republican Party right now about how far do you go within the bounds of the Constitution versus no, you should try to blow it up and try to get this issue to the Supreme Court. Uh, I think it's a real live debate, and um, I don't know what was going on in Oklahoma, but I think there is reason to believe that some folks who are really motivated to get rid of Roe versus Wade understand that there is going to be a backlash if you push a really extreme law, that there's never been a majority of Americans who, for example, favor banning abortion in cases of rape and incest. Yeah. And so if you push through these bans, you give fodder to pro-choice people to say, look, these guys are going to force pregnancies on women who've been raped. And that's not a popular position. So I imagine that there's folks at the leadership level of the right to life movement who are very carefully thinking about messaging and strategy if you want the court to reverse Roe and you want the public to accept any kind of criminalization of abortion. How much do you, uh, you know, for both of you, Michelle and Carmen, can answer this question too. I mean, how much do you think that the, the 2020 elections are, are playing a part of this debate? Because, you know, you've, I've seen reporting that, um, you know, the you know national Republican Party is not necessarily too excited about these Alabama laws because, you know, they're trying to win back female voters, particularly in kind of suburban areas. Um, 
you know, saying that you want a complete ban on abortion may play well here in Western Oklahoma. It may not play well in the fifth district, which is our congressional district that includes Oklahoma City and its suburbs, which flipped to the Democrats this year. I mean, how much do you think the the 2020 election and that kind of national push to try to win back, you know, female suburban, you know, moderate voters is going to play a part in how far we go with this uh, anti-abortion push? Carmen, I'm inclined to hear what you have to say. I'm just curious. Um, I guess I would lean toward it. It plays a huge part. I mean, um, I don't know that, you know, what uh, Alabama did um, on the Alabama level is going to... I guess what I would say is that it will all play into the presidential election, certainly, because um, any time this abortion debate comes up, then, you know, Trump can... um, talk to his base and say, look at these Supreme Court justices that I've appointed who are against abortion. um, And um, if you keep me on for another four years, I might get to appoint more. The Democrats, similarly, on the other side can talk to their base on the other side of the issue. And then, you know, Alabama, I think um, it plays to the Republicans' home base there. I mean, and and I think maybe part of the reason why Oklahoma is not having as much um, contentious abortion debate this year is because it is an off election year. And so um, I could see more happening in the legislature next year. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty obvious, uh, you know, Michelle, from from your from your reporting in this book that, uh, I mean, that's a, that's a big issue on the doorsteps. Um, you know, I talked to a lot of, you know, House and Senate members who are running for office and, you know, they are asked about abortion issues. They're, you know, they're asked about Washington. They're asked about a lot of issues that really don't have a lot of relevancy at the state level, but this is a, you know, this is a big issue. And a lot, a lot you know, a lot of Republican members ran last year on a, on a quote unquote pro-life platform, yet we didn't see a lot of push yeah. this year when it actually, when push came to shove during the session. I mean, and Carmen's a great point. Yeah. It's not an election year this yeah. year. Right. Yeah. And there's not much more push to, to be had. I mean, you guys have already pushed it a, yeah. you know, really, really far. You've enacted just about every piece of model legislation drafted by the National Right to Life. So, um, uh, it, you know, you, 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 you know, you're out there. You're really close to, to being as, as red as you can be or as pro-life as you can be. It's just that in the present climate, the, the, the sort of the temptation to reach for these symbolic bans um, seems to have caught the imagination of a bunch of other states. Um, yeah. But it, it, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at all to see a, a new raft of laws come come through your your state legislature in the coming year. Just because that's how we think, we think symbolically about abortion. So it's you know it's a way that you can nod to your constituents and and uh, check a box without having to do anything, without having to spend any money. You've just showed yourself to be pro life. Yeah. Do you- it's all going to get a lot more interesting, <laughs> yeah. I think, when um, when we ask, you know, okay, do you really just want to do this at a symbolic level, or do you want to actually give women alternatives to having abortions? And 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 just let me be clear for a minute why I say that. Half of all abortions in the in this country go to women below the poverty line. Seventy five percent go to women within two hundred percent of the poverty line. It really is at some very important level about not being able to afford to have a child. Yeah. Right. I mean, like, it's just we haven't thought of it that way. But if you talk to folks who are coming into abortion clinics, they're often telling you, I just couldn't afford to have another baby. Mm, yeah. Well, and I don't want to, Carmen, real quick, I, I don't want to necessarily cast this as just, uh, I mean, 
and I don't, yeah, and you definitely aren't. In fact, your book doesn't do this. I mean, cast that all Republicans are just after the symbolic part of this of this fight. Because no, I mean, you, no. you talked to, to Chris Steele, the f- former Speaker of the House. Um, you know, who had some really good insight to just kind of what it looks like behind the scenes. And I think he said, you know, listen, you just call a bill pro-life, it's going to get passed. But he said one of his biggest regrets, besides a bill that he, he voted for, was just that we don't do enough to kind of offer those alternatives and offer that support system. Um, and yeah. just like the, the group of, yeah. you know, the religious group that, you know, has been working since the 70s in that realm. So there are some groups that are really trying trying to do that. And, and uh, the, in the Oklahoma legislature, I mean, in their budget, this year, they um, they allocate two million for crisis pregnancy centers, and and you know when I talked to some of the Republicans who were behind that push for that money, they basically said, you know, we always talk about, you know, we got to get rid of abortion, got to get rid of abortion and restrict it, but we never allocate any money to actually help women who are struggling with this difficult decision. Um, And so, you know, they sort of justified it um, by basically saying this money will go to crisis pregnancy centers and those crisis pregnancy centers can help buy maternity clothes or prenatal vitamins or help these women see doctors. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I want to interrupt here just to be clear about the difference between Willow pregnancy and the folks that um, I met on the uh, in Oklahoma City and the average crisis pregnancy center. The average crisis pregnancy center is a storefront operation that will give women an ultrasound and a little onesie for the baby that they might have, and they'll also hand out um, for new moms some diapers often. Um, which is a really serious thing. Diapers are the single biggest cost that changes when you have a baby, 80 to $100 a month to keep your baby in diapers. That's unaffordable yeah. for poor women, mm-hmm. right? But what, what crisis pregnancy centers don't do is give a woman a place yeah. to live, a place right. to get sober, a, you know, a 12-step program, vocational training, a roof above her head for when she has that baby. That's what makes Willow Pregnancy um, in Oklahoma City unique. It is really expensive. They can take five women at a time. That's five babies that they save if you know if you sort of understand how they're seeing the world. But it's gonna take a whole lot more willow pregnancies out there. And the idea that just throwing money at CPCs will create meaningful alternatives to abortion is a fantasy. Yeah. Right? It's gonna take serious money to really give women alternatives that, that allow them to have babies they want to have. Yeah. Do you ever see a point in time where um, abortion is not necessarily a political issue anymore? And I say that thinking back, you know, a decade or two decades ago, gay marriage was a very hot button issue. And, and now it's really fallen to the wayside. And part of that is because of Supreme Court decision. And so I'm curious, you know, if the court does take up Roe v. Wade again, and, and they rule on that, will the Will people stop talking about abortion? Uh, You know, I don't think it's likely in my lifetime here, but I have been studying places where abortion is just a completely settled issue. And I know that it's possible. You know, in 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 France, in in Israel, um, in countries that have the lowest abortion rates in the world, it's a non-issue, and it's largely a non-issue because those are countries that really want their babies, and so what they do is they set up very meaningful supports for folks who get pregnant and are you know not necessarily in a stable place in their lives and so are considering abortion and you've got child allowances and you've got tax breaks and you've got subsidized daycare and parental leave policies you've got you know the daycare is in your neighborhood that i mean that's what it looks like in the countries that have the lowest abortion rates in the world and where it's just not controversial 
um, you know, we may get there, but um, uh, it's really hard to see down, down the, down and around the bend um, from where we yeah. are right now. You know, that's an interesting question because you know, Carmen, you and I are not terribly too different in age, a little bit different. But so, but gr- growing up, I mean, the big culture wars for us was was gay marriage and abortion, and and one of those has kind of mm-hmm. shifted a lot. The other hasn't. And you know, it's a, what makes abortion issues kind of such a fascinating topic is um, you know a lot of reasons, but. This is an issue that it's, it's, people are very divided on. It, that doesn't seem to be changing. Um, and I think it's also a lot more complex when you get beyond just the partisan politics that happen at a state capitol or in Congress. Um, I mean, people come to their beliefs on abortion through a variety of different ways. A lot of it is religious, especially if you're in a really deeply religious uh, you know, part of the country like we are. But, you know, um, it's not always just a partisan issue for everyone, but it often gets played up as that, as that mm-hmm. way. Um, well, Michelle, th- thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. I, I had a chance to, to read My this pleasure. book uh, uh, several months ago and, and found it really fascinating. I was glad that we could could bring you on to, to talk about it. Um, you know, just in the, in the minute we have left with you here, just, uh, I mean, what's, you know, what's the most fascinating aspect of this that you're going to be watching for? I mean, how much are you paying close attention to the, just the, the national debate, the Supreme Court debate? Are there any other states mm-hmm. that you're particularly fascinated by right now moving forward on this issue? <sighs> So it's it's odd because I'm a law professor and I follow the politics of abortion, but the piece that I'm most excited to watch over the coming decade or so is how good people on both sides show up. Because I, I think that, that it's only going to intensify the battle over abortion. And I've met good people on both sides and I've met cynical people on both sides. And I think that the the piece I'm I'm most hopeful about is that the good people will find themselves having to take different political positions, perhaps, than they've taken, having to show up in, in different ways and having to really forge common ground because what they care about is the lives of the poor people who are just being ground up in our you know, in our in our political system and in our economy today. And abortion shows up in, in their lives in, in ways that I think people on both sides should be deeply concerned about. We owe them yeah. more. Well, the book is Her Body, Our Laws, Michelle Oberman of the Santa Clara University School of Law. Thank you so much for your time. We, we enjoyed it. <laughs> My pleasure. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. you guys. Thank you. Bye. Well, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back for more Political State. Carmen and I will talk about the legislative session that just wrapped up at the state capitol. You're listening to Political State from the Oklahoman. We'll be back in just a moment. All right, welcome back to the Political State Podcast from the Oklahoman. Ben Felder here alongside Carmen Foreman. And uh, Carmen, interesting conversation with Michelle about uh, abortion, which is just, you know, obviously one of the biggest hot-button political issues. Um, but still, I was kind of surprised that we didn't see as much talk about it in the legislature this year. I mean, on one hand, we did. I mean, there were massive rallies or massive rallies. There was some demonstrations at the Capitol pushing forward um the the bill that would reclassify abortion as a homicide, but it just seemed like legislative leaders really weren't interested in really taking this issue forward in the way that we've seen in some other states. And given Oklahoma's history, that's just a little surprising that uh, the legislature chose to to sit this one out. Yeah, um, I think, you know, I, I'm I'm not saying it's always going to be this way. Uh, I think next session could be different from this session, but I do think that uh, the Oklahoma legislature seems to have recognized. The position it's it's put the state in, in in previous years, and part of that has to do with having a new governor elected. Um, I, I, but I think there's some recognition on the legislature's part that, to some extent, 
their actions put Oklahoma on a, on a national playing field. And, and this could be said about the, you know, I wrote about the four-day school weeks, mm-hmm. um, and Senate Republicans were very, very in, in favor of doing away with the four-day school weeks, and they passed legislation to sort of curb the four-day school weeks because they say it makes the state look bad on a national level. Yeah. And, and some of the very heated rhetoric about abortion also catapults our state into the national level. And so we could be the same as Alabama right now. We could be in that same situation. But I, I think to some extent, um, legislative leaders have moved away from some of these social issues because they they want to stay away from the national platform. Yeah. And I also think just in a, in a year when we just came off an election year, you've got a new governor who, despite the fact that said, you know, I will sign any anti-abortion legislation that crosses my desk. Um, I imagine that's not something he wanted to get to in this first year. I mean, he had issues of, of the budget, wanting to get that, you know, wrapped up. He had funding priorities that he campaigned on. Um cultural issues become a distraction from the um, kind of nuts and bolts of, of politicking. Now, I think you're right. Next year may be a different story. It'll be year two. We'll be in an election year. Um, there may be a feeling that they can kind of spend some time on that. But when you just had thousands of teachers rally, you know, walking out of their classrooms last year, you have people pointing to the fact that, you know, rural hospitals are closing. I mean, there's some real you know, real issues. And I don't want to make light of, of abortion for some people. That's a, that's a very real issue and a very important issue. Um, but there are just, like I said, those nuts and bolts issues that the state has neglected for so long that it felt like that maybe the uniqueness of Oklahoma this year was that you had a legislature that said, listen, we really do need to address some of these other issues. Um, but I don't think, uh, you know, I don't think the issue, I don't think we've seen our last of anti-abortion legislation. Oh, agreed. And and we did see some anti-abortion legislation. Some, yeah. And the governor did sign um, that bill that had to do with medica- medication-assisted abortions and... Um, Notifying women that it could be reversed, kind of based on some, you know iffy science on that front so we we did see some and and in some other states that would be a really big deal just given the given our history it seemed like a a low-key year on the abortion front which like i said it's just kind of a little surprising when you think about how the abortion debate is really ramped up this year in light of what other states are doing the new supreme court and just kind of what we might see moving forward well that legislative session did come to an end this week Officially, we still have another week. So the legislature could mobilize again if they wanted to try to override a veto. Um, but they adjourned yesterday. Governor signed the budget uh, today. I want to talk about that budget, something that you're you're writing about today. Um, man, the governor really got everything he wanted this year for the most part. Yeah, he really did. Um, and not even just in the budget. I mean, he basically kicked off the session and him and the legislature agreed to the uh, government accountability, the agency accountability bills. Um, so he has more power over some of the state agencies. And then this budget, he got teacher pay raises, yeah. which he's been promising since the campaign trail. Um, he socked away $200 million in savings, which is going to put our savings over $1 billion, which puts him halfway to his savings goal of $2 billion by the end of his first term. Um, he got $19 million for the Quick Action Closing Fund, which most listeners probably aren't familiar with. But it's like an economic development tool that the state uses, and the governor can basically dole out money as he sees fit to try and bring businesses to the state. Um, it, it, even the governor's office double, more than doubled its own budget, yeah. um, which they say is basically a transparency measure. Um, and 
and they got two million to you know fix up the governor's mansion. There, when when the money is good, um, it seemed like things turned out really well for Governor Stitt this year. Yeah, and I think uh, you know when he, I remember when he announced his his, his budget, his own budget proposal. Um, we didn't see a huge amount of pushback from Republicans, and that's really what mattered because they they control the House and the Senate. Um, but that two hundred million dollar savings figure was one that I heard leaders saying, "I don't know about that." Like, I, it's hard to imagine that that we have so many things that we want to fund that putting two hundred million away into the rainy day fund seems uh, not possible. In fact, if I remember right, I think the House, I mean, their their proposal was like around fifty million or something. Yeah, along I like think that. they wanted closer to ten percent of the surplus, yeah. not. Um, Essentially, thirty-three percent of the surplus. But he, but he got that, and I, you know, a, a, a governor that that won a pretty convincing, you know, victory that seemed to really, you know, do a decent job in this first session of capitalizing on on the momentum that he got from last November. Yeah, well, uh, one of the Republican lawmakers in the Senate told me that it's it's basically the legislature recognizes how popular Governor Stitt is, and they that um, you know Stitt has more of a platform to speak to the public than lawmakers do, or you know he speaks to a wider berth of the public here in Oklahoma, and um, they recognize that the people like him, and so if they can do what the governor wants, then maybe the people will like them too. Yeah, yeah, that's politics. Um, one thing we didn't see get done was Medicaid expansion. Um, not that I was, I mean, I, I didn't see this as as too likely of a thing this year. There were some efforts, especially late, um, you know, by some lawmakers to try to get some kind of version of Medicaid expansion, but even that didn't get through. Um, is this an issue that we're going to see taken back up again next year? And will that be too late? Are we going to see, uh, you know, already headed towards the 2020 ballot question? Um, definitely plan on seeing it again next year. Um, and, you know, Medicaid expansion is one of those issues that's so complicated. Um, you really have to devote a lot of legislative time to it, and you have to have a very solid proposal that is going to pass a, a, a wide berth of Republicans that already don't want to necessarily expand Medicaid or, or I guess, how the governor referred to it this morning at his bill signing is he wants to put together an Oklahoma plan. Um, and it, I think it's very likely that you'll see something like work requirements for Medicaid recipients or training requirements could be like um, a requirement that some of these recipients have to pay a small portion of a, a premium to receive services. Um, but the governor and uh, legislative leaders have said they're going to work on it in the interim. The governor um has said he wants to have a proposal out there by the fall. I, I once heard him say by August, and then today he said by October. So um, I think they're trying to get ahead of the Medicaid expansion ballot question. Um, but I think there are Republicans in the legislature who who recognize that if they tackle this ne- next year, it, they may be too late, and the ballot measure may already be gaining steam. Yeah. I mean, I don't think we would be talking about it as much as we were this year if there wasn't the the prospect of a ballot question, which is that effort is already underway. Um, and, and something that um, Representative Emily Virgin pointed out to me is that the legislature could do Medicaid expansion next year, and then the ballot question could still pass. So it could be, it may not be an either or situation. It may be a, a both situation. Yeah, and you may be setting, a, I mean, that'll be interesting because I think you're going to, you know, if, if that scenario plays out, I think you would have a governor and Republican leaders who are, you know, obviously going to be actively campaigning against it. Uh, you know, I'm not going to say they're going door to door campaigning against it, but they are, go- are going to be trying to, you know, talk up their plan versus the ballot initiative plan. I wonder how, you know, are, are Oklahomans going to think, well, you have Medicaid expansion light, 
here on the ballot is full Medicaid expansion. If we're going to have Medicaid expansion, we might as well go all, all through. Or is there a Republican stake in to say, all right, we trust the Republican legislature's plan more than we do a full Medicaid expansion plan? Right. But if, um, you know, Virgin pointed out that if the Medicaid expansion light does pass the legislature, but it, it, it let's say it covers 90,000 uninsured Oklahomans and then Medicaid expansion on the ballot covers 100,000 Oklahomans, you know, the the ballot measure could still pass and then more coverage. I, I, I wouldn't even know what it would do to the Republican plan at that point. It's yeah. hypothetical situation. And I don't think, I mean, there's not much the legislature could do about getting a ballot question off, even if they wrote into the law that says, like, if our if we pass our plan, that trumps the Medicaid expansion plan. I mean, I think you just, you're setting yourself up for a very messy fight. Yeah, that seems like it would go to the courts and then the courts would say, well, the people directly voted on this ballot question. So it seems like the will of the people would surpass the will of the legislature. But I don't know. Yeah, we'll have to see. Um, so, you know, a budget's done. Legislative session is done. Uh, as you've reported, you know, the, the session will officially end next Friday. That gives lawmakers a chance to quickly mobilize if they want to override a veto from the governor. Are we expecting as, are there any bills that you're particularly following closely to see if the governor does veto, to see what the legislature does? Or It seems unlikely that they'll come back to try and override any of the governor's vetoes. Um, uh, there was one bill that I was curious about if they would try to override the veto because there, um, there was a Republican-sponsored bill that would have um, changed the requirements for HIV and AIDS education in schools, and it got bipartisan support through both houses, and then the governor vetoed it. Um, but it sounds like the bill sponsors is not really interesting and interested in picking a fight this year. Um, so maybe he'll try it again next year, rewrite some of the language, see how it goes. Yeah. So a little bit of a calm after the session, I suppose, and we'll get into the interim session in the fall. Some other issues will be brought up in some in some meetings. Um, and then, man, we, we're headed into an election year now. I mean, it's really – I mean, when the session ends this year, it really – you know, I don't know that it officially kicks off the 2020 election season, but it kind of does because every decision moving forward, I think for many lawmakers, that election year is going to be how they how they view things. Yes, absolutely. I mean, a vote last week. I mean, I'm sure there are some lawmakers that are thinking about their election, their reelection prospects when they're when they're casting their vote. But it's a lot easier. It was easier last week to say 2020 is a long ways away. There's a whole other session between now and then. Um, but but not anymore. I mean, and a lot of these races are going to be getting underway this summer. I mean, in, in challenging competitive races this summer is when a lot of those races are going to get kicked off. Right. And I will point out that there were rumblings in the Capitol um, that there could be a special session on Medicaid expansion. And so I am curious how, you know, coming up with a Medicaid expansion plan or an Oklahoma plan, whatever you want to call it, how that is going to dovetail with an election year where a lot of these Republican lawmakers have to get reelected and they might not be reelected if they vote for Medicaid expansion. Yeah. Well, we saw a lot of lawmakers not run for reelection last year. This wasn't quite the extreme session that we saw in, in 2018. So maybe we won't, we'll see a few more incumbents come back. But who knows? Maybe there, we'll see another wave of, of lawmakers uh, you know, decide to retire early. Um, well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Political State Podcast. Carmen, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, we'll continue to follow this, the unofficial official last week of session, which is next week, to see if there is any drama. Not expecting there to be too much. Um, but uh, we'll be keeping tabs. So with the Oklahoman, with Carmen, I'm Ben Felder. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you for another episode of Political State next week. (laughs) 